Welcome back to Friends and Neighbors. I'm Benjamin Wagner, and this week, counselor, music therapist, singer, and songwriter, Kelly Ray Powell. As Kelly Ray reminded me recently, we find the people we need. I left Facebook one year ago and have spent the better part of my time since trying to figure out what the fuck just happened. Pre-pandemic, I worked at a high-stakes, high-pressure job at a company under scrutiny, in an industry under duress, on a planet on fire. I was on the road or in the air, away from my home and family nearly half the time. I was a pair of broken, battered twins. One of us in a dapper, tailored gray suit stormed newsrooms, boardrooms, and ballrooms from Delhi to Denmark. The other was riddled with lifelong anxiety and depression. To cope, I was medicated with a battery of SSRIs and Xanax to make it through the 12 plus hour flights. Worse, I was self-medicated, day drinking on Amtrak between my dingy Westside apartment and suburban cul-de-sac. I drank a six pack a night, gobbled edibles and snuck one hitters when everyone was asleep. I'd secret away this misalignment for as long as I can remember. It's right there in Mr. Rogers and me. What's more shallow and complex than riding the capitalist happy train in deep denial or blissfully grinning at 40,000 feet in business class? I was constantly conflicted and always wrestling with meaning. Why am I here? What difference am I making? How am I helping to repair a society under inordinate strain even before lockdown, before losing six million of our brothers, sisters, mothers, and fathers. So I just stopped and got myself into therapy again and began as Fred Rogers always encouraged us to look for the helpers. I started Friends and Neighbors because I knew I couldn't do it alone. I had to find the people who wouldn't look at me funny, roll their eyes, call me crazy or lame. My people, like Kelly Ray, who I met in a Brooklyn recording studio in 2010. See, it just so happened that after they divorced, my mom and dad exchanged custody of my brother and me on Christmas day. Six months later, we moved a thousand miles away to Philadelphia. Forever after, Christmas was heavy, sad, incomplete. My one salvation was holiday music, like U2's cover of Christmas Baby Please Come Home or Springsteen's Merry Christmas Baby. As teenagers, Chris and I would drive around luminarious through neighborhoods, drinking eggnog from the carton and cranking the stereo. So in 2006, I convened my musician friends to put together a rockin' holiday album of our own. This time, I wanted to sing Bono's line, thank God tonight it's them, instead of you. Well, thank God today it's me, and thank God for Kelly Ray. Her version of Feels Like Christmas was a standout across the 50 or so songs we gathered over five albums. It's raw and rough and real, just like the conversation in today's episode. Together, Kelly Ray and I retrace our steps from our mutual home state of Iowa to New York City to September 11th, where, as we figured out during this conversation, we were both stuck on the same subway line and emerged just a few blocks apart to a brave new world of fire and ash. Kelly Ray, already suffering from a prior assault, was diagnosed with PTSD shortly thereafter. 
In the intervening years, she parlayed her experience and education to heal herself and bring healing to others. It's taken me a little longer to recognize my trauma, but what's become clear to me in this last year is the epiphany that we are all hurting, that so, so many of our nervous systems are maladapted from things like the horror of 9-11 or the tragedy of a global pandemic. To say nothing of our individual adverse childhood experiences with divorce, death, abuse, assault, neglect. Deep, deep inside, whether with Zoloft, Paxil, Xanax, Budweiser, Hollywood blockbusters, or Instagram shopping, so, so many of us are working overtime, spinning plates to keep future facing and neither deal with nor heal from the deep pain of our past. Our troubled history of racial, gender, and wealth inequality, a culture that applauds the billionaire and ignores the needy. When Kelly Ray courageously shares her story, she gives me and all of us the space to do the same. As Fred Rogers told us, to make the mentionable manageable and to find a way forward together. So buckle up, bring some tissue and prepare to feel all the feels. We'll be right here beside you every step of the way. How do you let Joe Sixpack understand what it is that you do and how music therapy manifests in people's lives? This is my counseling office where I'm seated uh, now. You can imagine like the more traditional like counseling happening in here. I integrate music whenever I can, whenever it's useful. So the way music therapy looks in counseling might be this big drum. Someone feels angry and powerless might it feel good to beat the crap out of the drum? (laughs) (laughs) And the answer is yes. It really, really is exhilarating. And it's a, it's a safe place to release really powerful feelings. So that's a little bit of what music therapy looks like in this space. There's also ways that music specifically can be used within EMDR therapy. EMDR is eye movement desensitization and reprocessing with bilateral stimulation, which can be eye movements, tapping bilaterally or drumming, playing the piano. Music literally lights up the entire brain, not just the two hemispheres. Music goes everywhere. Mm. So your executive functioning is lit up. Your emotional center is lit up. Your rhythm centers are lit up. Your language centers, your memory. Music is transportational. Your brain thinks it's where it was when that song was important to you. Mm -hmm. And I can bridge that into the hospital work that I do. So two days a week, I'm at Blank Children's Hospital in Des Moines and or John Stoddard Cancer Center. So I'm bringing drums and instruments to pediatric palliative care patients and adult, um, mostly end-of-life oncology patients. Mm. For the adults, music is used to transform the space of the hospital room where they're actively dying. Mm. Mom loved the Beatles. What was her favorite song? You know, I play Here Comes the Sun, Mm -hmm. and everyone's holding hands and singing along, and it's how they say goodbye. And so instead of that 
cold hospital clinical, scary. Yes, big time. So bilateral stimulation desensitizes trauma. It makes images of trauma less vivid. It can make the kick you get when you have a traumatic memory, it can lessen Uh. that. So while we're providing this bilateral stimulation of music in this hospital space as someone is dying, we're also ameliorating trauma. We're lowering the chances that this is going to become a traumatic experience for the family. Mm. Maybe they have young children present. Humans love meaning. Yeah. We love to ascribe meaning to things. And so then we can give this beautiful moment at a loved one's passing as they transition. We were able to do that for the person who is dying. Or sometimes the person who's dying can no longer speak and they have a song they've chosen for me to play at the end. And so they can say goodbye I can facilitate that goodbye, even though yeah. they might be intubated. Right. Wow. It's so it's so powerful. How do you get through it? And everyone's looking at you. You're we're, you're our shoulder in this moment, correct? To be like completely honest, some of what makes me good at being a hospital music therapist is my own trauma history. Yeah. So maybe I can dissociate really well. I'm there facilitating my client and their family. That's pretty clear. So they need a song. They don't need it to be perfect. They just need it to be beautiful. So I'm going to make mistakes, but that's okay. That's a chance to model that we make mistakes and then we repair. And, you know, music is is really helpful with the clients who have perfectionism. (sighs) You know, I can teach them a song and just be awful at it. And, oh, look how it's okay that, you know, so, you know, to speak to that, there are times when I, I found it difficult, but in the work I've learned, I've benefited from the coping skills. I've taught my clients the grounding skills. I've taught my interns. We find it where we find the strength in the room. We find it in the ground, mm-hmm. we find it somewhere in our breath. Usually it's in our breath and in the music yeah. because music is so, it's so, it's structured, right? Yeah. People talk about, oh, music is so grounding and holding. Well, I mean, yeah, it is. <laughs> it's the space where we have expectations that get fulfilled. We all know how here comes the sun goes. Yeah. yeah. And there's a safety in that. And if we're all singing together, the song holds us up. The music holds us yes. up. Yes. Oh, Kelly Ray. <laughs> That's yeah. the answer. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. the answer. As I've been writing this book and kind of pivoting this career and trying to be like, how do I make music more front and center instead of this thing I do after this stressful day job? It gives me a way to organize melodically and editorially things that maybe don't make sense yet. And I've been playing music mm-hmm. since I was 15. So I don't know why it took 35 years. Your but subconscious like, was already doing it. Let's move backwards a little bit. Are you born and raised Ankeny or Des Moines or that area? I was born in Lincoln, Nebraska. And when I was like nine months, my dad got a new job and we moved to Ankeny, Iowa, just north of Des Moines. And that's where I grew up. At the time, there were like 30,000 folks. It's grown. Yeah. I think there's like 68,000 now. 
give me a sense of like Kelly Ray at nine or 11. What things did you love? How did you spend your days? I was obsessed with Barbies and Disney records. I had a record player. Yes. And my mom has this cassette tape she made of me when I was three because I would just sit and listen and sing along. She thought I sounded exactly like Snow White. She was so proud. Oh, so she recorded me. Yeah. It's adorable because I do like the little accents. I had a very rich, imaginative world. Mm-hmm. I was very socially awkward. I wrote books. My sisters would have to like, I would tell them exactly what to write because I oh, couldn't I write it. yet. You're, you're already delegating. I, yeah, I was like, you write this because I can't write. Right. But I'll take the byline. I did the pictures already. I would have them read it back. Watched a ton of movies, listened to music. I had the CD player that my grandpa got me when I was in high school. I would listen to Andrew Lloyd Webber. I had never seen a performance, so I would draw and listen to. Mm. Did not have friends. <laughs> Because other kids didn't have the same interest or you were shy or all the above? Like a combination of, oh man, so awkward. It was kind of sad in junior high. I would like eat lunch in the bathroom. (laughs) Oh. Because I would get made fun of. If you were to query someone I went to high school with or junior high school with, they'd be like, what do you mean? He was student council vice president. He was completely fine. And I was a nervous wreck the whole time. Mm good at masking yeah still (laughs) i mean i hope i'm getting better at actually dropping the mask but yeah i mean i think that's part of what i had to do as an executive is just like puff up your chest take a deep breath put your shoulders back and cross your fingers Mm. and you know for me the last really six months has been what happens if i just um get close to that discomfort not pop the xanax Mm. or drink the beer or whatever and try and get closer mm-hmm. to what's going on inside of my body. So I just share that because I want you to know that I, I didn't eat lunch in the bathroom, but I spent a lot of time in headphones on the outdoor equipment as far away from everybody as I could. <laughs> Listening to Duran Duran's Rio. What Don't was your... Right, exactly. What was your Lloyd Webber jam? Tell Me on a Sunday was the first track. And I, I still haven't seen that show, but that song I thought was so powerful. Tell me on a Sunday. I think it's a show about a divorce. I think I was 12 or 13 when I discovered the song. But my parents are still married. (laughs) I don't know why it was so fast. It was just beautiful. And it kind of taught me how emotionally connected the singer is to the music or can be. Was being connected to your feelings and expressive about them? Was that not okay in your high school or in your household? Was there, well, you know what I mean? mean? In the Midwest, it's not, it's just not. Got it. We're like bootstrap people. Right. Got it. Yep. Feelings are rude. They're gross. <sighs> Ew. I love this. Okay. Wow. See, I wouldn't know. Like when I visit, I'm the feelings guide. To have a lot of feelings and to be an emotional, artistic highly sensitive child. Uh, It was really, really amazing for me to discover the verb recordings of Billie Holiday Mm. and Andrew Lloyd Webber. (laughs) It it would transport me, you know. I think it taught me as much empathy as reading ever did Mm. to live in someone else's experience and imagine what they feel. And 
oh man, just hours just listening to music and singing along and journaling. Most people who know me, oh, she's such an extrovert. Right. Because you present on stages and because you perform? As I'm growing up, (laughs) I'm reaching middle age. I'm finally letting myself do what I want to do. Mm. And that's a more quiet, introspective place. You know, who knows? Maybe it's just like because I'm a therapist now and I'm with people all day. and And so I need more inner space than I used to. But I've always been a writer. Yeah writing music has always been deeply personal Mm -hmm. and I use songwriting as an intervention with my music therapy clients a ton. It helps clients with chronic pain, chronic medical conditions or end of life clients. I, I work mostly with cancer patients because they spend so much time in the hospital. Mm. They have a lot of space and time to fill. If you're even just like therapeutically teaching someone the ukulele. That's one of my favorite interventions, like teaching someone ukulele. They can just spend hours in the hospital room with their little ukulele. They can start writing songs and they can write about their experience. They can write to distract themselves from their experience. I've known people write songs to say goodbye Mm. to their family. It's, It's too hard to say, hey. Yeah. I'm checking out. Bye. But like writing a song is somehow easier. And then it's something you can keep and it can become a resource. It can be like, oh, this is what mom made for me to say goodbye. Or this is what I wrote when I had cancer Mm -hmm. and I was so strong. Was uke your intro, your first instrument? I'm a vocalist. I was Uh. a vocal performance major in college. Did you go from Andrew Lloyd Webber in the headphones to trying out for plays and stuff? I was in plays. That's when I finally had friends. I was in Into the Woods, directed by Carrie Shapiro in the 90s. Wow. Shout out to Mr. Shapiro. I love it. Forever. (laughs) I starred and lend me a tenor. And you felt like you've arrived in your own body? Like, did you feel like, okay, this is, this is what I'm supposed to do. And that led you to the university of Iowa where you pursued theater arts. I was a theater major and a music major and graduated early because I did a show in New York at the New York theater workshop because we had a visiting professor, Karen Coonrod. She's in the Yale drama program. Wow. Yeah. She teaches Shakespeare came to U of I and directed a show based on the works of Flannery O'Connor, mm-hmm. who went to Iowa mm-hmm. to a writer's workshop. So of course she came to Iowa yeah. and took me to the production when she did it in New York. And had you been at that point? Not before Karen took me. She had me do a reading before I graduated. I think it was an audition, but mm-hmm. she didn't tell me. It was the first time I'd ever been to New York. I think I was a sophomore in college. Wow. How was that? It was amazing. Yeah. (laughs) I fell in love. Did you go to see some Andrew Lloyd? Oh, I saw Electra on Broadway. Oh my gosh. It was the first Broadway show I'd ever seen. And I just loved it. How did you feel somatically? As I'm getting older, I'm realizing how sensitive I am to stimulus and moving to Iowa kind of showed me that like loud noises I'm diagnosed with PTSD. Mm. I was in New York for 9-11 mm. 
Right. And that happened less than a year after an assault that I had experienced. So I had just moved there. Yeah. But I was so in love with that city and with the purpose for being there. And that's when I taught myself chords on the guitar. And that's when I started writing songs. Was it an intellectual response? Like, I need to heal and this is a way I might be able to? Or was it more unconscious? I don't even know. I remember being at my temp job and I I didn't have friends yet because I just moved. I graduated early because I was supposed to do the show at the New York Theater Workshop, but they didn't get the right. (sighs) Boo. I didn't know that was a thing. But I was like, I'm moving to New York anyway. I love it. So I moved anyway and I was like, I'm staying here no matter what. And then it was like, 9-11, 9-11, yeah. assault, yeah. <laughs> like no friends. And I was like, I remember being at my temp job and I couldn't wait to get home. It was actually Karen Kunrad's husband, Jonathan, had an old guitar uh, and he lent me his guitar. Yeah. I loved, I don't know, I maybe it just felt like I existed yeah. or I, I, I don't even know, but it, it kept me alive, literally. Yeah. It gave me a reason not to give up and it was just writing little songs and and it's so funny like thinking about it like that's what I do with people now Mm -hmm. like I help them create meanings surrounding their trauma that's because it saved my life it's amazing and I I didn't really make that connection until I was at that healing mode really and they were talking with a patient and I was like (laughs) wow Oh my God. They're like, as a patient of cancer, how do you use music? It just occurred to me that like, oh, I used it as a survivor of assault. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, watching the world fall down. Yeah. Like it was obviously unsettling for so many people. I'm super grateful that you shared that. And I appreciate your confidence in me to share that. And I'm especially interested in the proximity of those two traumatic experiences, Mm -hmm. because one of the things I think I've gotten closer to, and I don't know if you saw Mr. Rogers and me, but I talk a lot about my parents' divorce because it's a very simple proxy for disease for a moment as an eight, nine, 10, 11 year old where the world collapsed. It's a very traumatic experience for everyone involved. Yeah, it was a wreck. And, and, and safety, which is a word you've used a ton. Now I know why that word matters in a way that I never did before. It's an adverse childhood experience. Yeah, it's on it's, that it's ACE test, ACE isn't it? Yeah. yeah. No, it's no small thing. I had my jaw broken by a kid I went to high school with. It was a sucker punch. So it was a assault insofar as it just happened. Meaning one minute I was sitting in the backseat of a car. The next minute I was knocked out on the ground and going to the hospital. And so I just wonder if you can help me understand as a person who studied psychology and somatic psychology and now has an experience on both sides, how do traumatic experiences relate to one another? To me, it feels like I'm kind of a vessel and there was a certain amount of some toxin poured in and it rose to a certain level that meant my capability of dealing with stressful situations was diminished because I was always on edge. If my parents' divorce was the only thing, then my then everyone would have the right to be like, bro, lighten up. Actually, I, can, I would argue no. Well, no, they you. don't. <laughs> <laughs> 9-11 is such a great thing to talk about because I saw that from 14th Street myself. And that's you know, where I was too. 
I was coming out of the subway in front of Tower Records. Oh, yeah. You were a little bit further east. I was on 14th and University coming out of the NR. We might have been on the same train, Ben. Yeah, we probably were. <laughs> Did you hear that crazy announcement? Yeah. Due to a police activity. Due to an yeah. explosion. Yeah. 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 Or yeah, yeah. yeah. All train service has been canceled. Yeah. And I'm stuck under the... All. And you were, we were underground for like a half an hour, right? I didn't hear it. <sighs> I didn't notice because I had my headphones on. I had my headphones on and I didn't hear anything. And then I noticed that people were talking to each other. Right, which and never that's happens. weird. <laughs> right. I took my headphones off and I heard that announcement <sighs> and I went up the stairs and I didn't see anything but smoke. Right. To me, in my memory, it was silent. Yeah. And everybody was looking towards the smoke. 100%. Yeah. I remember walking to the river because I thought, well, this whole island could explode and I'd like to be as close as I can to the river so I can swim for it. Like that can't be good <laughs> long-term, do you know? I was walking to Radio City Station Post Office with 350 postcards because remember we used to communicate to get people to shows with postcards about an album release for a record called Crash Site, which had a plane on the cover crashing and the main song, Crash Site, was oh my about my parents' divorce. And by the way, I'd met Mr. Rogers a week prior and I would say Fred got me through it. And I immediately the next morning said, well, what do I do with this now? I was about to put out a record with a plane on the front in oh three weeks, God, a record that I'd spent, dude, you know, like you're, when you're making records, when you're a kid, it, yeah. it's all the money in the world that you have. It's so expensive. Oh my God. And then, so then more scary. than now. Yeah. Then more than now. And I'd flown to LA and really thought I'd done it, you know, and kablooey. And I thought, well, what would Mr. Rogers do? I walked to Brooklyn a couple of days later and re-recorded the song Crash Site acoustic and put it out as a benefit record. So I tried to turn it into something good. And at the CD release at Mercury Lounge, after the set, the woman behind the bar said, oh, you got a call from some guy named Fred. He said, break a leg. <laughs> Mr. Rogers. Called Mercury Lounge. I listen to my supervisor talk about trauma like an onion. Like it can just, mm. there can be layer upon layer upon layer. When we have a traumatic event, it's a brain injury. Mm. And our brain can do these things that save us in the moment, right? right? So our amygdala or our lizard brain or, you know, that ancient part of our brain that that made us go, oh, snake, you know, that gets activated and we do fight, flight, right. freeze or fawn. We do one of those things that saves our lives, right? And so like our window of tolerance for scary things can with more layers of the trauma onion, that tolerance for things that knock us out of that window can lessen. Mm -hmm. I started seeing a psychiatrist when I realized I was chopping onions and I dropped a piece of onion and I screamed. Wow. That was a trauma response. Right. <laughs> like there's no need to scream yeah. when you drop an onion. Oh, like yeah. something was not healthy. So, yeah. you know, trauma can lessen our tolerance. And then, you know, we find we're, you know, we're screaming when we're chopping an onion. Right. Right. You know, when right. normally you could like chop an onion and say, dang. Yep. No, but you, if you have that unhealed trauma, your brain is geared to save your life because your brain doesn't know that that was in the past and you're safe now. Right. The body okay. keeps yeah. the score. 
what happened next with your own creative expression insofar as, so, so you started learning some chords and writing some songs. I tried to write a musical mm. and I did. Everything was in notebooks and I didn't have a computer or a cell phone. So like I wrote it in a book. I still have it too. The Solitary Girl Choir. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, choir changes the whole thing. <laughs> you said you turned to songwriting. Now that you know more about psychology and what's happening with music in terms of our brains and bodies, what can you tell me about that impulse? What does it tell you about your impulse to do that? And subtext, mind. <laughs> right? Music was always a support to me. It always was. I learned some chords on my friend's guitar, and I wrote a little musical, and I performed it in Brooklyn to film kids from the University of Iowa and some dancers and some animators, you know, just like a friend group. And I think what I found was that my musical sounded more like an album. Writing songs just seemed a more natural thing for me to do, especially someone who's not super disciplined and who gets distracted really easily and didn't do well in theory, like <laughs> music theory. And I was like, this is an album. I write songs. So I just kept doing that like writing songs. My master's is music therapy. And my first project was songwriting with an adult in a Bellevue inpatient hospital. And we wrote songs together. And she was a songwriter and I was a songwriter. And we kind of met each other at from this like songwriting place. And she taught me how she writes songs. And I taught her how I write songs. And so we collaborated and we wrote a song together. Music therapy for her, her diagnosis was schizoaffective disorder. But in the music, she appeared healthy. She didn't have delusions in the music. She didn't have paranoia in the music. She functioned as a healthy 20-something. Why did she present as healthy in music? I don't think we really know how music impacts the brain and how it just literally lights up the brain, every aspect of the brain. So were we using so much of her brain that her brain was able to bypass the symptoms that she was having? All I knew is that it was something that really helped her. She'd have to come back and work on her her medications from time to time. And she said that I'm still writing songs because they're helping me stay calm. They're helping me stay grounded. And that's exactly what they did for me. I began to have a relationship with myself. I didn't have buddies, like friends. When I moved to New York City, I was lived alone in this little one bedroom. I would go to work so I could pay rent and I would go to auditions. And I had some theater friends, but like nobody that I could hang out with. So it was really this lonely, but kind of special time. Cause it's really when I, I learned to play chords on guitars and I learned to write songs. And that's been a nurturing thing I've done ever since. It's how I'm alive. It's how I'm in the world is to write songs. If I look back on it, 
as a therapist, because I do use songwriting as an intervention, right? As a tool to work with people who have anxiety or depression or people at end of life. Songs can serve so many different functions therapeutically. They can be a legacy building piece for someone at at end of life. They can be a resource for someone who is spending loads of time in a hospital and they have all this space and it gives them the chance to be this human who can create. And you can write a song anywhere, right? You know, you're in a hospital room, you can shut the door and be alone with your thoughts and you can create art. So like looking back on it, I was regulating myself just very recently. I was wondering what happened and mapping out what actually was the assault, what happened and what part of it was the worst part of it and why I'd always kind of been like, oh, I... I'm bad at relationships or, oh, I was nuts in my 20s. A lot of the choices I was making were trauma responses to two traumatic events that happened really close to each other. For example, I used to wonder if I was an alcoholic because I would drink a lot as a coping mechanism and I've lost friends because of it. I've lost periods of time because of it. It's actually very common for assault survivors to drink as a coping mechanism. It's a common way to kind of numb what you can't possibly process in the moment. And I can process what happened to me now. I'm an adult. I know that I'm safe now, but I didn't know. I thought it was my fault. Like I blame myself, which is also common Because how can you really process, you know, this person I trust, this person I love treated me this way. So big. It can be too big to process. Bring me into some rock venues with you. How did that evolve from that one show where you were like, well, I got to get a band and play some rock shows? (laughs) Kind of. Well, I didn't really think I was good enough. Like I did it entirely for myself. It was a totally like self-nurturing activity. I identified professionally as an actor, but my roommates, I lived with these two friends, Mary and Angie, and they're like, these are good. Oh, yeah. And they like physically, do you remember Lila's Lounge in Brooklyn? Uh Uh And they had an open mic night. Jezebel had an open mic night. Lana Del Rey used to come to that oh, open awesome. sure, yeah, yeah. night back when she was Lizzie Grant, right? Yeah. And like sometimes like it was, we were the only girls there. <laughs> it was like my way of keeping expectations low and then knocking it out and of the park with my ukulele. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was really, it was kind of like my, it was my safety, you know, was that ukulele. The first time that Mary and Angie drug me to Lila's to the open mic, I was shaking. I was so scared. And I was like, wow, I haven't been scared on a stage in a long time. It was a challenge like, oh, well, if I can be comfortable telling my stories, because I think that's what made it scary. Because my songs I wrote for me, they were pretty autobiographical, although I lied a lot, just to keep things anonymous, right? I don't want anyone to know I'm writing about them. I became very comfortable doing it and I wanted to do it more than theater. They were mine. Theater is someone else's. 
when I got booked to some music gigs, I would get paid. And so much of what I did as an actor wasn't paid. It just fit me. What prompted the move back? I mean, what made you think, okay, it's time to go back? Back to Iowa? Yeah. I was pregnant with my second child. And you were like, not doing this here. It just was hard. I just remember having a bad day. Like Donna had fallen asleep in her stroller and Edmund was very new and he was like wrapped around me in a wrap and I couldn't pick Donna up. The bus driver was like, you've got to get off, ma'am, because you're not supposed to have a stroller open. And I was like, I just need to go two stops. Can you like, and he's like, no. I was like, so we'll just take the subway and then she'll, you know, she'll probably wake up. I cried because I was all hormonal, very hormonal after having the baby. And so it's just like, you know, just a new mom having hormones and crying. And, and I just, I just really wanted family to help. And it's so funny because it literally happened like overnight. Cause when we had Donna, we were like, no, we're raising our kid in Brooklyn. Like we're not going anywhere, but just one more child. Like it doesn't double the work. It like quadruples the work. But in retrospect, we know more about our own trauma because there's less to distract us in Iowa. <laughs> Literally, like there's like nothing going on. So it's like, there's no, no way to hide from past traumas. But we also have more resources and time to heal and do work together with our Iowan therapists. It's this gift of awareness that all the silence of the Midwest has brought us. At first, it was unnerving and terrifying. <laughs> like, who am I? Why am I here? But now it's like, it gave me space to find myself in that silence. It is time to get simple and deep. Yeah. It is time to mention things that are terrifying and, and make them more manageable and to normalize scary things and just sit with each other as we're feeling them and try to learn that it's okay not to have the answers that no matter what, you know, this is, this is scary. This must be so scary for you. I don't know the answer, but I know that you are not alone in this. Yeah. So yeah, be messy. We need to be able to be messy with the people that we love and to be able to know that we can screw up and that at the end of the day, there is hope not because we have answers, but because we're not really alone. Friends and Neighbors is an Essential Industries production in association with Wagner Brothers. Learn more at friendsandneighborsshow.com. And please help your friends and neighbors discover our show by sharing, liking, commenting, and rating. Really, it makes a difference. Mr. Rogers and Me is available on Apple TV, Amazon Prime, and PBS DVD. Until next time, it's a good feeling to know we're lifelong friends. Fall was strange Winter cold Springtime this year made me feel old But there were flowers Brooklyn town When you held the door for me And then you let me hold you down
just who you are You are what you say You say it out loud When you ask me to stay You say stay with me Why don't you stay with me And suddenly it's summertime Thank you very much. 